Hello, and welcome to the History of Japan podcast. Episode 64, An Unnatural Intimacy, Part 2. Last time, we spoke about the emergence of the U.S.-Japan relationship and its early years, culminating in the dawn of the 20th century. Although there were some rough patches in the relationship, on the whole, the two rising powers found much to agree over, and their relationship was, for the most part, a friendly one. The growth of both nations culminated around roughly the same time, with their explosion onto the world stage. The United States crushed Spain in a war in 1898 and established itself as a major military and colonial power. Japan, meanwhile, shocked the world by defeating Russia in 1905. The period after 1905 saw the U.S.-Japan relationship transition into a new shape. Both were, at least for now, no longer expansionist states but leading great powers, and neither one was, again for now, expanding its territory instead concentrating on reaping the rewards of previous expansion. Japan was being drawn ever closer into the Anglo-American orbit. Its formal alliance with the United Kingdom, signed in 1902, and Great Britain's ever-growing closeness with its former colony, created a de facto Anglo-American Japanese bloc, which dominated East Asia. Now, there's one thing I should stop to point out here. The astute among you will remember that it was after 1905 when the Imperial Japanese Navy began considering the United States Navy as its primary hypothetical enemy and adjusting its fleet building and tactical plans accordingly. This hardly seems compatible with ever-growing friendship between those two nations, but it's actually, paradoxically, an outgrowth of the heavily westernized nature of the Imperial Navy. Of course, the primary model for Japan's Imperial Navy was Great Britain's Royal Navy, but inspiration and guidance was also drawn from the United States Navy, in particular a naval theorist named Alfred Thayer Mahan. Mahan's book, The Influence of Sea Power Upon History, 1660-1783, was basically a work of history, but also a work of naval theory. To reduce its ideas to the barest of bare bones... It argued that a world power had to have a strong navy in order to really be a world power, because otherwise it could not secure the oceanic trade routes upon which so much commerce, wealth, and therefore influence depended. According to one often quoted and dubiously true but wonderfully juicy story, the Kaiser of Germany, Wilhelm II, was so impressed by the book that he went to his admirals and demanded that Germany build a strong fleet in order to be a true great power, something that his previous advisors, including the famous Otto von Bismarck, had argued against. That strong fleet in turn aroused the ire of the United Kingdom, Great Britain feeling that its naval supremacy was being threatened by Germany, and led to the tensions which eventually boiled over into World War I. Again, it's a bit of an oversimplification and not a verifiable story, But it's a good one, and it gives you some idea of the reach and influence of Alfred Thayer Mahan's thinking. Mahan was extremely popular in Japan as well. One of Mahan's dictums was that theoretical planning should always be set for the worst case. Theoretical enemies should be based in terms of absolute potential as a threat, without regard for political climate between nations. The target should be, in Mahan's own words, quote, not the most probable of dangers, but the most formidable. The idea was essentially to plan for the worst case, so that anything else seemed like a picnic by comparison, and to have plans in place should relations break down, 
with a powerful but previously unthreatening neighbor. In other words, the selection of the U.S. Navy as a hypothetical enemy had everything to do with obeying the dictates of Mahan and wrangling for budget increases, and little to do with an actual expectation of hostilities between Japan and the U.S. Specifically, the Navy wanted to peg its own strength on the U.S. Navy. It wanted to maintain a 7 to 10 ratio between itself and the U.S. Navy, on the theory that it couldn't match the U.S. 100%, since the U.S. also had to patrol the Atlantic Ocean. The outbreak of the First World War in 1914 seemed likely to drive the U.S.-Japan relationship even closer. The United States leadership, and a good chunk, though not all of the population, sympathized with the Allies, and once the U.S. entered the war in 1917, the two nations were fighting the war to end all wars on the same side. Ironically, one of the people responsible for coordinating this flowering American-Japanese friendship was the young American Assistant Secretary of the Navy, a rising star in America's Democratic Party named Franklin Delano Roosevelt. There were some points of friction, specifically over Japan's increasingly aggressive attitude in China. After the collapse of the final Chinese imperial dynasty in 1911, the new Republic of China was rather weak. The Japanese seized the chance to browbeat concessions out of China by a series of 21 demands, called, originally enough, the 21 Demands. This behavior was not very popular in the U.S. and marked the first real open rupture between the two powers since their spat over Hawaii in the 1880s. However, little came of it. The American government condemned the move as a violation of the treaties governing foreign behavior in China, specifically what was called the Open Door Policy, that powers there should avoid trying to extend more exclusive rights to themselves in China and instead compete openly on a capitalist, free-market footing. More hardline Japanese, meanwhile, condemned the Americans as hypocrites. Did they not force others to recognize America's exclusive rights in South America by means of the Monroe Doctrine, the over 100-year-old policy of maintaining the U.S. as the special protector of Central and South America and keeping other great powers out? Who were the Americans to say that Japan could not have its own Monroe Doctrine in China? Of course, little thought was given on either side to what the Chinese had to say about all of this, though obviously the Chinese had a great deal to say. We'll be doing another multi-part series like this on Sino-Japanese relations, and when we do, I'll go into depth on the reaction to the 21 demands in China, which is very important in its own right. At the peace table after the end of World War II, the differences between the two erstwhile friends became more pronounced. Leading the Japanese delegation was the youngest of the Genro, these now old men who in their youth had led the country to overthrow the Tokugawa and establish the modern Meiji government. This youngest of the Genro was named Sionji Kinmochi. Sionji was a committed liberal in the Western sense. He believed in British-style parliamentarianism and free trade. He was not a populist, but believed that the success of the Anglo-American powers meant that using them as a model was both unavoidable and wise if one hoped to keep up. He also brought with him a very young man who in many ways was his political apprentice, but who would take a very different path. A hot-headed young 27-year-old from a very, very old noble family named Konoe Fumimaro. Konoe will be with us for a while yet, as he will take more and more of a leadership position in the government 
and eventually preside over its bumbling into war with China and over the souring of its relationship with the United States. Conway was, by all accounts, a brilliant and clever man, well-educated and well-spoken. He was also passionately anti-liberal. He thought the world order as it existed benefited only the have-powers, like the United States, United Kingdom, or France, and left late-developing have-nots, like Germany or Japan, out in the cold by virtue of their inability to acquire colonial empires matching the ones that already existed. Conway first came to global attention in 1918, when he wrote a pamphlet for the occasion of the Versailles Peace Treaty entitled Against a Pacifism Centered on England and America, arguing the points I've just laid out. I'll post a copy on the WordPress page so you can take a look at his ideas in his own words. He's often described as a fascist, but this only debatably fits his stance later in life and definitely did not fit his views in 1918. At this point in his life, it's more appropriate to identify him by what he was against, Western liberalism, than anything that he was for. Conway was also known as a bit of a dandy. For example, he was a bit picky in terms of what cuts of sashimi he would accept at even the highest of high-class dinners, and preferred his fish served fondue-style in a pot of boiling water. They were served to him, and I swear I'm not making this up, by a geisha whose job it was to chopstick feed it to him. He also had his favorite fruit, strawberries if you're curious, washed in sterilized water before he would eat them as well. He insisted that his constitution was delicate and that he needed this kind of special treatment, but it's likely he was just a spoiled rich boy enjoying the privileges of being very wealthy and very influential. Conaway also received some very upsetting news at the time of the Paris Peace Conference, which resulted in him being in an extremely bad mood the entire time. He'd just found out that his favorite geisha, Kiku, was pregnant with his child. Ironically, he had gone to stay with her for a while to get away from the pressures of his growing family. Kiku's pregnancy put him in a bad mood for the entirety of the Versailles Conference. All in all, one gets the impression of a man who was clever, but not really suited to the hardship of governance. For now, Konoe's role was minimal. Sionji, the pro-Western liberal, took the lead. His big initiative at Versailles was the culmination of the many years of work on Japan's behalf to attain full equality with the West. Sionji wanted a stipulation in the charter of the New World Governing Body being set up by the conference, what would become the League of Nations, stipulating equality between the races. This proposal became known as the Racial Equality Clause. Some will tell you that this was an altruistic move on Sionji's part, and it's certainly portrayed that way sometimes, but it was not. Sionji didn't really care about securing legal equality for everyone, he just wanted legal equality for the Japanese. The fact that the clause failed was taken by some hardline Japanese, including Konoe Fumimaro, as proof that the Western powers were irredeemably racist and could not be trusted. Meanwhile, the American vision at Versailles was a sweeping one. The United States wanted a new global order to replace the world of empires and secret diplomacy, which had, in the eyes of many Americans, including President Woodrow Wilson, caused World War I. Led by Wilson, a group of Americans with a distinctly internationalist and liberal in the same pro-free trade, pro-cooperation, and anti-secret diplomacy sense as Sionji Kinmochi, were pushing for a new global order based on these values. 
American strength at the end of the war was such that other nations, including Japan, had little choice but to go along with the initiatives like establishing the League of Nations and the prohibition of secret treaties, even if they did not like them. However, American public opinion was also set against involvement in global affairs, to such an extent that American participation in the system that its own president had tried to build was extremely limited. Most famously, though the League of Nations was Woodrow Wilson's baby in a lot of ways, the American Congress failed to ratify its covenant, and thus the United States was not admitted. However, despite American unwillingness to invest too much in the new global order, the simple fact was that from 1918 to 1931, there weren't really any other options on the table. As such, American internationalism and liberalism basically won by default. For Japan, the triumph of liberalism was the undoing of one of the, perceived at least, greatest accomplishments of the Meiji era. In 1921, the government of the United Kingdom that it would not be renewing the Anglo-Japanese alliance. All future security cooperation would have to take place on a multilateral framework, that is, involving more than just the UK and Japan. For the United Kingdom, this was a simple power calculation. Britain needed the US more than it needed Japan, and the US was at any rate stronger. The US wanted the treaty removed in the interests of a multilateral and internationalist approach to global affairs. American diplomats felt that these one-on-one -on -one alliances were in part what helped cause World War I. The U.S. got its way, since it was the stronger and more influential player. For Japan, this was a slap in the face. The treaty between Japan and the U.K. represented the formal acceptance of Japan as an equal partner by the most powerful country in the world at the time. The annulling of the treaty seemed to nullify all of that. Still, the Japanese could do little but grin and bear it. The 1920s saw two other major American initiatives which affected Japan. The first was called the Washington Naval Conference. We've talked about this a bit, but in case you're rusty, the United States launched an initiative designed to fix the ratio of battleships, considered at the time to be the most powerful part of a navy, in line with the thinking of Alfred Thayer Mahan. The United States, the United Kingdom, and Japan would agree to fix the ratio of their battleships, preventing any arms races between their countries. The conference took place in 1922, and the plan fronted by the U.S. and backed by the U.K. was for a ratio of 10-10-6 between the battleships of the U.S., U.K., and Japan. For every 10 the United States and the United Kingdom could build, Japan could build 6. The rationale behind Japan's smaller allotment was that Japan was merely responsible for patrolling the Eastern Pacific. The United States and United Kingdom had territories around the globe, which they were responsible for patrolling. Or if you were a hardline Japanese nationalist, the real reason was, of course, racism. Remember back at the start of the show when I mentioned that the Japanese Navy used the U.S. as a worst-case target, and settled on a 70% ratio with the U.S. as its ideal? Well, this treaty basically threw that plan out the window, and as a result the Navy split into two competing factions which were very confusingly led by two unrelated men who had the same last name. The first faction was led by the Navy minister, Kato Tomosaburo, and was in favor of signing the treaty anyway. After all, Japan could not exactly afford to perform the diplomatic equivalent of flipping over the table and walking away, so it wasn't like they really had a choice. 
The second faction was led by a hot-headed young fleet admiral named Kato Kanji. Again, no relation. Kanji wanted to demand the 70% ratio as Japan's right, even at the risk of preventing the conference from coming to agreement. He was essentially willing to see Japan smeared internationally as the state unwilling to play ball at a peace conference in order to get the navy that he felt his nation both needed and deserved. The Americans and British, meanwhile, were utterly unwilling to budge, and showed a great deal of tone deafness towards the struggle on the Japanese side to come to acceptable terms. In the end, Kato Tomosaburo and the pro-treaty faction won out, but the effort quite literally killed Tomosaburo. Run ragged from months of barely sleeping trying to handle the negotiations while staying in touch with Tokyo and wrangling support from the Navy, he died the following year. One side effect of the Washington Treaty was an increased interest in the Japanese Navy in a new type of technology not restricted by the agreement, aircraft carriers. These new weapons of war, which many more traditionally-minded naval men thought of as purely support ships, were championed as the wave of the future by a few far-sighted officers in navies worldwide. One of these champions of the carrier was, at the time of the conference, beginning a stint in Washington as a naval attaché to the Japanese embassy, after finishing his education at Japan's prestigious Naval Staff College. His name was Yamamoto Isoroku, and unfortunately during this series we're not going to have much time to spend on him. I'll talk about why when we get closer to Pearl Harbor. However, he's a very fascinating character, and we'll get into his life at some point, I promise. The other famous treaty of the time was the 1928 Kellogg-Briand Pact, or the Pact of Paris, a treaty designed to outlaw aggressive warfare. It, too, divided Japan's government between anti-treaty hardliners, led by the military as well as nationalist civilian leaders, like Konoe Fumimaro, now a successful politician, and more practically-minded ministers in the leadership. The prime minister at the time was an ex-army general named Tanaka Giichi. He favored the pact not because he particularly liked its aims, but because he saw no way to avoid giving in to the U.S. and the United Kingdom. The army and navy fought him on the issue. Most military men in Japan and worldwide figured that the Paris pact would be a dead letter when the chips hit the table, and thus paid little mind to it. The pact went through, but it marked Tanaka Giichi as sympathetic to the English and American stance in Asia, and as a result, the hardliners in the military were no longer willing to work with him. When, the following year, extremists in the army assassinated the warlord of Manchuria, Zhang Zuolin, Tanaka's attempts to have the conspirators court-martialed were actively blocked by the army, and instead he was forced to resign when the army minister threatened to bring down his cabinet. Thus, for the first time, the army got away with being openly insubordinate to the prime minister. The American leadership, meanwhile, was totally unconcerned with goings-on in Japan. The three American presidential administrations which covered the 1920s, those of Warren G. Harding, Calvin Coolidge, and Herbert Hoover, were primarily concerned with domestic issues, and when international issues did pop up on the radar, they were mostly European ones. Japan was not really a major issue of concern for the United States at this point. It was even less so after the Great Disaster of 1929, the stock market crash in New York, which is often considered to mark the beginning of the Great Depression. 
America turned sharply inward after the Great Depression, and what little attention it had focused on Asia dried up more or less entirely at this point. To say that the Great Depression put Japan in a bad place, meanwhile, is a tremendous understatement. Japan's economy was hugely dependent on exports, so the drying up of the international goods market hit Japan very hard. Despite that, internationalists in Japan retained some degree of credibility. There was another arms limitation conference in 1930, the London Naval Conference, designed to extend the restrictions of Washington to all naval vessels rather than just battleships. The new Prime Minister of Japan, Hamaguchi Osachi, was determined to prove Japan's good graces as a responsible member of the international community by ratifying the treaty. Hamaguchi got his wish, and the treaty was ratified, partially because it upped Japan's ship quota from the previous 10 to 6 to a new 10 to 7 ratio. However, yet again the Navy was divided on its response. The Naval Ministry, the civilian agency responsible for organizing the Navy, approved the treaty, but the General Staff, the planning division of the Navy, argued that arms reduction was its responsibility and not the Ministry's. Essentially, the Navy broke into two halves and squabbled over bureaucratic priority, compounding the situation were further political squabbles at home. Hamaguchi was a member of a political party called the Riken Minseito, or Constitutional Democratic Party. The opposition party was the Riken Seyukai, or Constitutional Friends of Government Party. The Seyukai, seeing a chance to take out Hamaguchi, sided with the Navy General Staff, and attacked Hamaguchi as violating the prerogatives of the military, which was supposed to be independent of civilian control. Leading the charge was a man named Hatoyama Ichiro, who, after surviving the purges of World War II, would become an active politician after the war. He won't be coming up in much more than a peripheral way from here on in, though since we've talked about Japan's political dynasties, it's worth noting that his grandson, Hatoyama Yukio, would become prime minister in 2009. For now, I mention him only to point out that A., Contrary to what some Japanese will tell you, there were quite a few civilian leaders, particularly in the Seyukai, who were willing to hand over power to the military in exchange for political advantage. Many, including Hatoyama, did not see the danger until it was too late. It's also worth noting that B, as Hatoyama demonstrates, there was a good amount of continuity in the leadership before and after the war on the civilian side, which might be a cause of the rather elitist nature of post-war Japanese democracy. Fodder for a future episode, perhaps. For now, I bring these points up only as food for thought. The London Naval Conference marked the high point of Japan's willingness to cooperate with the world in general, and the United States in particular. As such, it makes a good stopping point from which we can turn to examine the general trend of Japanese-American relations from 1853 to this point. Generally, and I do mean very generally speaking... The Japanese-American relationship can be described as a sort of N-curve, starting at a low point, getting very high in the 1920s, dropping down low again in the war years, and getting steadily better ever since. At this point in our story, we're at the first kink in the road. Up to this point, Japan and the U.S. had found many of their interests to be aligned. Both were in favor of a stable regime of international trade, both had their own reasons for supporting the U.K. and the Allies in World War I, both were interested in the stable Pacific and avoiding destabilizing arms races. Last and most importantly, Japan's leaders recognized that regardless of their desires, 
they were not strong enough to forge their own path, and thus they couldn't really do anything other than follow the dictates of the United States. However, as we've seen this week, some cracks began to appear in that relationship, as some Japanese leaders, drunk on perceptions of their own invulnerability, and seeing a very real weakness in the American-led system, began to weigh the odds of forging their own order in East Asia and rejecting the American-led vision of liberal internationalism. Next week we'll discuss the beginnings of their rise to influence. Buoyed by early triumphs against China and eventually by Nazi victories in Europe, they will delude themselves into thinking that they stand a chance of building their own empire on par with the United States. The cost of finding out how wrong they were will be, simply put, terrifying. That's all for this week. For more on this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapan. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next week for An Unnatural Intimacy, Part 3.